It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hi Astros fans, this is Steve Sparks. Did you know that the team store is open? Well, you do now. And don't forget old dad. Sunday is Father's Day and they have those new Nike MLB jerseys. They also have Yeti tumblers, Columbia fishing shirts, you name it. And his pop's a fun guy? Well, how about an Astros Hawaiian shirt? Might be a good one even if he's not fun. So come see us. The Astros store is open 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Also 9 to 2 on Saturday. And while you're at it, Minute Maid Park tours are back. Those tours take place every day of the week, and they even have a special one every Saturday night at 9.30. We call it the Ghost Tour. So don't be a stranger. Come and see us. You can also go to astros.com. Back to Astropod, the official podcast of the Houston Astros. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Astropod. This is Todd Callis. Hope everybody is doing well, and hopefully uh, as we entertain you getting ready for the start of the baseball season that we keep saying, hopefully it's around the corner. Hopefully this time it truly is. Uh, Sparky, Steve Sparks joining me on the other side. We have a very special guest today, uh, somebody that Bill Brown calls Mr. Astro, and it's uh, an appropriate title. We'll get to Larry Durker in just a moment. But first, Steve Sparks, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, TK. Uh, I'm super excited to have uh, Mr. Astro on with us today. Nobody encapsulates uh, what it means uh, for this Astros franchise uh, throughout history, more so than Larry Durker and uh, I think we're lucky to call him friends and, and uh, uh, just to get a chance to, to hear some stories. He's so good at storytelling. I, I can't wait for this one. Yeah, let's start. Let's start. We've got Dirk on with us right now. Larry Durker, who not only is Mr. Astro, but he started his career as a Colt 45 at the age of 18 on his birthday. Uh, Dirk, welcome. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Todd. Um, I'd like to see the, the season get started. I think like most sports fans, I'm, I'm missing some of a lot of different sports on TV that I would ordinarily be watching. So, you know, we just learn to do other things, but that doesn't mean that's what we prefer. Surprised you to a degree uh, that, that you miss live sports as much as you do? No. Uh, what I remember my dad uh, telling me when he was somewhere around the age I am now that he lost his interest in sports unless it was the World Series or the Super Bowl. And, you know, maybe I'm not that selective, but I don't just watch anything and everything. So I, I, I've gone by without it, but I, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's weird because it's, it's all tied up with something that's happening in our city, in our state, in our country, and all over the world. And there's not very, well, there's nothing you can do about it uh, except to try to stay in a good mood and I've been okay in that area. Well, I know you now live close to Memorial Park, home of the Houston Open for this year and year's future, but has the golf game improved? How you doing out there on the links, Dirk? Worse and worse. Sparky can still play. <laughs> Your golf tournaments have been legendary throughout Houston, raising a lot of money for a lot of great causes. But uh, back in the day, everybody talked about how long 
uh, you were off the off the tee box, Dirk. You you were a, a three hundred guy, weren't you? Uh, I don't know, but downhill with the wind, maybe. Uh, I could hit it farther, a lot farther with a persimmon, persimmon driver 20 or 30 years ago than I can hit it with my high-tech driver now. When you hear Mr. Astro, what does it, how does that make you feel? I mean, you literally have spanned the entire uh, length of the Astros history uh, from day one till now. I mean, is this is something you take pride in? You know, I'm, I'm happy to look back and, and think about uh, – the different things I've done. Playing was the first, of course, and then broadcasting. And then while broadcasting, I started writing columns for the Chronicle. Then I started writing podcasts for the pregame show. Then the biggest surprise, going back down to the dugout to manage. And then after managing, writing a couple of books. So uh, I kind of touched all the bases there. And I don't think that there's another person in the whole history of the sports that has done all four of those things. It is amazing. And, you know, I was looking at Astros Daily, one of my favorite websites, Larry, and uh, it just happened to say on this date in 1969, it said Private Larry Durker, who was on a 24-hour pass from the Army while fulfilling his military commitment in Louisiana, outduels Steve Carlton 2-1, to one, and that was capped, you, you capped it off by driving in Julio Gote with with the game winner. First of all, I mean, tell us the dynamic or, or the logistics of going back and forth, uh, fulfilling your military commitment and still pitching. Back then, uh, the Vietnam War was raging, and so when when players were signed out of high school, uh, they were uh, at a draft age, and so. All of the teams made arrangements. It was exciting for me because uh, uh, I didn't really care for Fort Polk. Uh, <laughs> it was in July. It was really hot. They didn't have AC there. And I got to come into the Astrodome. I'd left tickets for um, oh, a whole bunch of people for, that came in on their weekend pass, and a lot of them being officers. And then I pitched the game of my life against Carlton wow. and won it with a base hit. So I didn't have to do much work at Fort Polk when I got back the second week. <laughs> yeah, the 51-year anniversary of this event as we talk to you today, the thing that's crazy to me, Dirk, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 11 innings of, of pitching, and then at that point it sounded like you were coming out of the game, but Harry the Hat Walker decided, decided to let you hit because it was a lefty Joe Horner pitching, and there's only a couple of lefties on the bench, including the Hall of Famer Joe Morgan? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, I, I didn't expect it. You know, I was, I was on my way up to the clubhouse, and they stopped me in single hit. There's a guy on second base and two outs, and uh, I knew I was finished pitching. Um, and as it turned out, I was able to get a base hit and win. And I, it, was, it was exciting. You know, I mean, what would you rather do, Be you know, uh, put your fatigues on and, and crawl up a hill or go out and pitch in the Astrodome. Yeah, I got a chance to talk to Don Sutton a few years ago. I, I got him on our pregame radio show before a game when the Braves were in town. He's a broadcaster, uh-huh. of course, with Atlanta. And one of the things he told me, which he didn't really understand, is why none of the players really asked him, what was the secret to him being so durable throughout his career? Because he never missed a start. And we're talking about 1969 in a season where you threw 305 innings. So I'll ask you, what's the, what's the key to durability 
for so many guys when you were pitching? <laughs> Other than uh, medical attention, yeah. injections, heat, sound, uh, stretching, just everything you could do to get out there. Um, and I, I, I'm one of those people that believe you. If you do the things that uh, in your era are the things to try to keep yourself ready, and mm-hmm. you do all of that work, that some guys will still have relatively short careers, and some guys like Nolan will pitch, you know, four thousand plus innings and five thousand plus strikeouts. Uh, he had a great work ethic, and everybody knows that. But right. I have to believe he was born with something that allowed his arm to withstand all of that pitching. And as you know, he threw harder than anybody, which yeah. makes it seem like he would not last as long. But at the end of his career, you know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't like some pitchers, uh, Frank Tanana for one, who mm-hmm. made a transition from being a power pitcher to being a finesse pitcher. Nolan was a power pitcher right to the end. Yeah, he's just a freak of nature. So you're talking about a specimen <laughs> that you don't you don't see in a generation or, or two. Uh, but for you, Dirk, and I know you, you love to pitch, you love to get the ball every day, and you wanted to go the distance every time you got the ball. And I think you're going to hold the all-time record forever now that complete games are kind of an endangered species. You had 106 as an Astro, and I think that's going to stand the test of time forever. But uh, when you look back, do you think, you know, your first all-star season with the 305 innings or even earlier than that, when you were just a teenager and pitching in high leverage moments, did that, uh, do you think contributed all to the arm issues you had later on in your career? I think it did. I, you know, and I think the, um, there are a lot of variables. Uh, for one, if you talk about, Don Sutton never missing a start and, and pitching 4,000-plus innings. The Dodgers uh, were not as likely to um, allow you to pitch into extra innings um, or mm-hmm. to throw pitch in relief between starts. But uh, the Astros were willing to do that, and I was usually the guy, um, and I wanted to do it. Um, so, you know, I, I, it was 13 years is still a pretty long career. And uh, I'm satisfied that I got as much out of it as I could, but I sometimes think had I been with the Dodgers or the Cardinals or the Phillies or somewhere, would I have uh, not thrown as many pitches as many complete games or into extra innings as often? And I don't know. There's no answer to that question. But I do think guys like Carlton and Sutton and Ryan, uh, who we've been talking about and so many others, uh, they weren't doing the same thing I was doing. So, I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe the medical staff of the trainers could pinpoint it better than I can because for me it was just do your job, make your start, do all the things that were expected of you and make yourself indispensable, which was the way I felt about uh, my pitching and the way I felt about my broadcasting, the way I felt about managing is that if they couldn't find anybody that was any better, then you could keep your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it ended up being a great career. Uh, and toward the end, uh, what was it about that day at the Astrodome in 1976 against the Expos where you were able to throw a no-hitter, uh, albeit with a sore arm? What went right that day? Uh, everything, uh, yeah. as usual. Well, one, the first thing I noticed was Gary Carter wasn't in the lineup. Not that I minded facing him that much, but there were a couple of their key players weren't in the lineup. 
Uh, and at that stage of my career, I was kind of, uh, it's hard to say, uh, I, I was motivated to continue to be the, you know, uh, not the ace maybe because we had JR by then, but at least indispensable. Right. So I'd been trying to throw too hard. And for a couple of games, you know, I felt like uh, I was losing command uh, in order to get more velocity. So going into the game, I had the thought, I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm just going to make pitches and hit corners and, and pitch and not try to see how uh, what I could do with the radar gun. I'm not even sure they had one at the time. But anyway, uh, about the seventh inning, when I realized they didn't have any hits, uh, all of a sudden I got this huge adrenaline kick and it was kind of the reverse of Lance McCullers. Remember the game against the Yankees where he oh, yeah. threw all yeah. curveballs in the eighth and ninth because yeah. they couldn't hit it and they kept swinging at it. Well, in the eighth and ninth, my fastball was sailing. It, it was riding and it was sailing across the plate in on lefties and away from right-handers. And they were swinging, fouling it back and popping it up and striking out. So I never threw it. I threw all fastballs in the eighth and ninth inning. And not only because I, I felt like it was the best pitch and it had a lot of life, but it was also a fly ball pitch. And when you're pitching in the Astrodome, fly ball oh, yeah. pitches work pretty well. Uh, ask Jose yeah. Lima. They don't work so well when you get into minute base. <laughs> so sometimes you have, when you're pitching, you have to consider all the, the variables. And in that one, my adrenaline uh, just sort of trumped everything. Do you have any idea had a, uh, how many pitches you threw? I, I think in that game, maybe 120 or something like that. Uh, yeah. I think in the game against Carlton, maybe closer to 150. Uh, one other game in L.A., I can remember I was in trouble every single inning and uh, finally got the last out, I thought. And, uh, we were ahead like five to four. And uh, two, out, two hop ground ball right to short in the shortstop, threw the ball over the first base with head. They had runners on first and second. Both of them scored and lost six to five. Wow. I think I probably threw 150 or more uh, pitches in that game too because I was just in trouble all the time. But you said that it was a surprise because you had a little bit of a sore arm. You you weren't even throwing in between starts at that point, but then you went all fastballs late in the game. You end the game with a ground ball on the right side. Do you think Watson was going to flip it to you? He ended up taking it to the bag himself, and then you guys started the celebration. Is this X-rated, or is what, what are we playing this thing? No, we're, it's, we're always X, it's, all, it's always X. Okay, well, you guys, you know, you can edit it out if you don't want it. Um, the picture in the Chronicle the next day, I was near first base, and Bob Watson had caught the ground ball. Mike Jorgensen hit the ball, and Bob ran it to the bag. And so I – you know, when I was about 10 feet from the bag and realized he was touching first base, I jumped up with my arms spread wide and my legs spread wide, and that's mm -hmm. when the guy snapped the picture. And so <laughs> I got, I got a, a telegram or something. They didn't have email, but I, I got uh, a message from a guy named Johnny Goya, who was a city councilman, and I'd met him a few times, and he sent me the note that that uh, was pretty good because he had that picture <laughs> And he said, uh, it looks like the same things uh, work well in sports as they work in politics. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Mike Jorgensen was kind of 
going to, you know, wave to pat me on the back or whatever he was going to do. It looked like he was trying to grab me. Wow. <laughs> hey, Derek, there's so many facets uh, about your career uh, that we've got to get to. We don't have enough time to really dive in as deep as we want. But let, let's talk about your broadcasting career. Uh, the, the bulk of it was from 1979 through 1996, and you had a lot of really good partners with Gene Elston, Milo Hamilton, Dwayne Statz, and Bill Brown, of course. Uh, what was your style at first, and how how naturally did you take to broadcasting? Well, I, I was a little bit uh, – uh, I, I would say I got off to a stumbling start. Uh, I, I was a, a good interview as a player, and I, I was confident that I would become a good broadcaster, but I really didn't know – uh, what the, the role would be for an analyst or color man or whatever yeah. you might call it. And so just to learn the, the nuts and bolts, I would follow uh, Dwayne Stats and Dean Nelson around. You know, we'd go into the locker rooms and get the lineups, go down to the batting cage, talk to everybody, go back upstairs, read all the notes, make notations on, on the scorecard to be ready to, to talk. And uh, after about two months, I realized what was happening uh, – was not good because those guys were going three innings and over the TV, and then those three innings and back for the last three innings. And so they were using the notes extensively about hitting streaks and, and you know, scoreless streaks or whatever was in progress for any player. And I started using their material because I'd read the notes. I didn't have my own material. And that's mm. when I learned that the – the, the job of the play-by-play guy is to describe the action and to, pro- to provide you with facts. And my job, uh, as I learned, was to make the game more enjoyable. So that was my mantra, so to speak. Uh, uh, five or ten minutes before the game, I'd turn to whatever partner and I'd say, well, are we going to have fun tonight or what? Yeah. <laughs> and so that was the thing. I said, if we're having fun in the booth, then the person listening or watching at home is probably having fun too. But if we're acting like it's too hot out today, we keep complaining about this or that and setting the scene with things that don't uh, seem appropriate anyway, for certainly for being happy. So I started uh-huh. keeping a book full of quotes. And so I got quotes from all kinds of players going way, way back and, and also famous politicians and presidents and all that sort of thing. And I kept that book. And then I had the idea of doing the uh, the baseball library, which was a this day in baseball feature. And yeah. I would look up things that happened on any given day. And then I would get the newspaper article if I could, or maybe sometimes get something out of the book. And I would have a whole menu from opening day till the end of the season with a different three-minute story every day from baseball history. First couple wow. of years, it was mostly Astros. But then, you know, that kind of wore thin. And then now it's, you know, it still exists. Uh, and it's got players of all different eras from, you know, pre-1900, a little bit, you know, minor league stuff, uh, stuff about, like, Anita Martini, the first lady to, to get into the uh, locker room and the first lady to actually call an inning uh, of a major league game. So there, just, wow. there were any number of sources to get good material and so people tell me that they still like those things and i still like them too it was just another way of writing but it was putting together i would call somebody and ask them what it felt like on that day and then talk to them for 15 or 20 minutes and we do 
we, we'd cut that down to whatever we wanted to go into the show. And uh, then I learned there was a guy in Indiana who had been saving play-by-play for since the 50s, John Miley. So we had an off day in Cincinnati, and he lived in Louisville. So I drove down there, and uh, he took me down to his basement. And it was incredible the stuff he had. It wasn't just baseball. He had stuff uh, from football, boxing, everything. And wow. he had both audio and video. And so after that, I made a deal with him where uh, I paid him a little bit of money for the cuts I needed for my show. So then I would have interview segments, sound bites, and, and some play-by-play. And sometimes the audio was real great on all that stuff. But for the most part, it was it was acceptable. You could hear what the people were saying and, and get the idea. Because my, my interviews were all by phone, so that's a little tricky. Sometimes you get good audio, sometimes you don't. But those yeah. things were an example of things I tried to do as a broadcaster after I learned that I wasn't going to be the play-by-play broadcaster, that I was supposed to do something to add to the play-by-play. That's, that's great, adapting and adjusting. And, and that's what you did in your broadcast career. And you uh, made it 18 years strong before uh, – the next chapter. But before I get to the next chapter, when you said, I just told my broadcast partners, let's have fun. When was the first time you showed up in a Hawaiian shirt? And what was the origin behind <laughs> that? When did it become popular? Well, we, the reason I got the manager's job in 97, uh, other than maybe they thought I, I could do a good job, but the, what happened in 96 was that the team lost about 12 or 13 games in a row. And I think they went into September about two games out. And by the time that losing streak was over, we were pretty much eliminated from the race. And those are the things that get managers fired. So one night toward the end of that streak, we were in Miami. And uh, they, they, the Marlins started scoring, and we were behind by five runs or so fairly early in the game. And uh, so we took the, the – you know, the TV broadcast panned the dugout, and all the guys in the dugout were sitting looking down at the floor like they were at a funeral. And I said, I was with Bill Brown at the time. I said, you know what's wrong with this team right now, Brownie? He said, well, we're not hitting. <laughs> well, I think it's more than that. Well, what is it then? Not enough Hawaiian shirts. So he goes, what? And I said, well, you know uh, – have you ever seen a guy in a Hawaiian shirt that wasn't having a good time? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I get it. Then where's yours? So I said, well, I'll just wear it tomorrow. So I go to the mall the next day because I didn't have a Hawaiian shirt at the time. And wow. I couldn't find a Hawaiian shirt in a mall in Miami in 1996. <laughs> That's how out of fashion they were. <laughs> and so we talked about it a little bit uh, in the coming weeks. And then I got the, you know, the interview to manage the team and everything. But I, I think the the thought, I don't know how that came into my head that I just blurted it out. But the idea, I think, is still viable. If you're, if you're struggling, uh, chances are it's not the best mood in the clubhouse. Team, you know, you've been on teams that win. You've been on teams that don't win. Uh, some people say it's like a chicken and egg thing. You know, if you're winning, you have good chemistry because the uh, – the bench players and the relief pitchers can't really question the way the manager is using them because you're winning. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's in a pretty good mood, even the guys that would like to play more. But if you're losing, 
Oh, brother, then it's the bad chemistry because every bench player thinks he should be starting and every relief pitcher thinks that he should be saving the game and you know, they're not getting to do that. We're losing and losing and you got bad chemistry. So I felt like the Hawaiian shirt uh, episode was saying that in a way. You've got to almost force yourself to have a good time if you're not winning because the only thing that's going to lift your spirits is winning a few ball games. And so anyway, yeah. uh, people started bringing me Hawaiian shirts at the Dome and, and then uh, the, the next year I went, you know, I was managing, but I was wearing them to and from the ballpark and that sort of thing. And, I don't know. I, uh, it just happened. You know, I, I look now in, in 1997, Dirk, Dusty Baker was the manager of the year. And the, the following year, 1998, you were the manager of the year. And here Dusty Baker is managing this team again. But you had a great good, a good choice, by the way. He knows what he's doing down there. Were you a numbers guy? I mean, I, I get the sense that uh, before numbers were in vogue, that you, you – they, they played a, a role for you. Uh, I think at the time that uh, I left the dugout, I knew I had knew or had read practically everything that you would now call analytics that was out there. Uh-huh. There was one book, The Hidden Game of Baseball, where some of the formulas were beyond me. But uh, there was still narrative, so I understood what they were trying to say by yeah. using the formulas. And so... There's so much more now. Uh, for example, the the shifts that you employ, particularly with a uh, left-handed hitter and a right-handed pitcher, right. when they started that, I thought, I would hate that. There's nobody on the left side. I, I can't pitch low and away. Low and away, you know, that should be your, your bread and butter for practically every pitcher. Right. Uh, but then, after I watched it for a while, and, and it doesn't matter. I saw guys just drive the ball between first and second, and Altuve out there about fifty or sixty feet in, into right field, just pick it up and throw the guy out of first. I'm thinking, well, that would be pretty cool. And then I said, <laughs> well, if I wanted to pitch the away, I could just throw slow sinkers instead of throwing uh, fast four seamers, and and that was one of the pitches I used to get left-handed hitters to hit the ball on the ground on the right side. Uh, a lot of times I take a little speed off of it, so I thought, well, I might not be able to throw as hard as I can low and away, but that doesn't mean I can't pitch low and away. Yeah. So I started thinking, Steve, you know this too, you can almost force a left-handed hitter to pull the ball, but there's no way that you can intentionally get him to hit the ball in the opposite field. So, and yeah. Especially with today's mentality of home run or nothing, you know, no matter what the count is, the hitters are swinging as hard as they can swing. And mm-hmm. so little, you know, slower pitches that kind of fade down and away from left-handed hitters uh, work just as well, maybe better than they ever did. Larry, you, uh, you talk about the game today and how it's changed. Now you see guys like George Springer and a lot of others who are at the top of the lineup that can hit home runs. And uh, George has only chasing one guy in terms of uh, Astros history, the most home runs as a leadoff hitter. And that's the guy you moved up into the leadoff spot, Craig Biggio, before it was in vogue to have a guy who could hit the ball out of the ballpark in that leadoff spot. Why did you feel like Biggio was the right guy to lead off for you? Well, the overriding thought was something that I learned as a pitcher. There are situations where if the leadoff man is an RBI guy with power, that it will mm-hmm. force you to pitch to the eighth hitter. And if you're in the National League, because they're going to pitch hit for the pitcher 
So you have to get the last out of that inning before the leadoff man comes up. And so yeah, he makes it a little easier on the hitters that are hitting eight, the eighth and ninth place. Hitters are going to get better pitches to hit. Uh, if it's Maury Wills or Felix Mian or uh, guys like that, they're just singles hitters anyway. So you're not too worried about them. But when you have a power hitter hitting a leadoff, it's really dynamic. And it worked great with Biggio. When I first came over, he told me he preferred to hit second. And I said, well, I'm going to write you in the leadoff spot until it doesn't work because you're too good a hitter to give yourself up. Back then, a lot of times the number two hitter was a good punter, uh, was a hit-and-run kind of guy where you're not swinging as hard as you can. Uh, and I just felt like uh, that he would present to our opponents the same situation I had to face when other teams had power hitters in the leadoff role. And I think it worked out really well, and I think in the end that he – was happy that, that it turned out that way. But I don't know. He was in, intensely uh, interested in winning. And I think that he thought we could help more as a number two hitter. I thought he could help more as a leadoff guy. I think in the end, he might have agreed with me. He certainly did your share of winning. Uh, you played on teams that were over 100 games below 500 uh, in your Astros career, but you were personally 20 games over 500, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, I talked to Sparky earlier uh, during this pandemic about uh, we were watching The Last Dance and how even though the modern-day NBA fan might claim LeBron's the greatest, it's hard to argue that Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. The reason we got on that topic is because in baseball, you could ask 10 different people who have been around the game forever who they think the greatest baseball player is, and you might get anywhere from five to 10 different answers. You've spanned all the generations of Astros history and even in the Colt 45's history. Who's the best player you saw play this game, Dirk. The best player I've, I've ever seen is Willie Mays. Uh, if you look at his numbers, they're, they're about the same as Henry Aaron's. But Aaron never bought it, and Mays did. Aaron played mm. right field, and Mays played center field. Uh, Mays stole a lot of bases, and Aaron did not. So Mays had those other little things and those entertaining things and the, just the frivolity I use that word because that was one of the quotes I marked down when I was doing that stuff for broadcast, and it was from uh, Branch Rickey. And he said, Willie Mays, the secret to Willie Mays is the frivolity in his bloodstream. He doubles wow. his strength with laughter. And if wow. you're on the same field with Willie Mays, he was always chirping, always laughing, always in a good mood, a lot like Altuve and in terms of when you're watching him, you think he's having a good time. And he was, it was easy for him to have a good time with the kind of ability he had. When you, when so, you made your debut at age 18, pitch against the Giants, you're facing Willie Mays in the first inning of your <laughs> big league debut. You strike him out looking, right? Yeah, I struck him out looking on a slider. Yeah, I was so nervous. I don't know why. I, I had a strike in the count, and I decided to throw a changeup. And I got uh, strike two with my fourth best pitch. And he hit it about 450 feet, but it was a little bit foul. And then the, the next pitch, and I'd already sailed a couple of balls over Harvey Keene's head. And so uh, Willie was kind of light on his feet in the batter's box for that particular bat. And uh, I threw a slider that started right at him, and he jumped back, and the ball broke over the inside part of the plate. Uh, later on, once he knew I was probably not going to hit him, uh, it was a little harder to get him out. In fact, uh, in one game at Candlestick, I could swear he played the wind on me. 
I threw him a curveball like in the first inning, down and away, and he reached out and one-handed it and, and got it over the fence and left by about an inch right at the foul pole. And there was no wind blowing. It was a day game. By the sixth inning or so, the wind was howling from left to right. And I threw a fastball inside. He took an inside-out swing and sliced it over the right field fence like he just threw it up into that wind and it blew over. So, oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, good stories. I left out one thing, Barry Bonds. Mm. I said both Giants, Barry Bonds, uh, in my mind, is the best hitter I've ever seen, and it's not even close. Uh, so I, I don't know what I'd do if I had to face him. I mean, I mean he, yeah. could, he could hit every he could hit every pitch in every part of the strike zone over the fence. And he wouldn't swing. If you missed the, the strike zone by an inch or two, he wouldn't swing. So by the end of his career, he was walking, he was walking almost 200 times. And you know, if, that, if, if you see a guy that walks that much, that's a, a sign of respect uh, from the pitchers or maybe fear. You know, Babe Ruth walked a lot too. Ted Williams walked a lot. When you're, mm-hmm. when you're concerned the guy might hit a home run, you try to make these perfect pitches and, a lot of times you don't, so the guy walks. Uh, a good, a, uh, a really interesting thing uh, about the Giants when when Bond was playing is they they had a guy uh, Matt Williams who was a great third baseman and mm-hmm. a great power hitter. And in different seasons, uh, they would have him hitting in front of Willie. I mean, in front of uh, Barry Bonds or behind him. In one year, he was a league MVP. He was hitting in front of Bonds. Well, he was getting strikes. Uh, mm. That Giants team didn't have a real strong lineup after the five position. So if he was hitting behind Barry, then nobody would throw him a strike. But if he was hitting in front of Barry, he'd get fastballs yeah. to him. And so that makes such a difference to the hitter. Uh, anyway, that uh, is something that's about as, uh, as vivid an example uh, of what it does to be hitting either before or behind a great hitter. And to bring it back to uh, an Astros story, Joe Morgan was like a 265 hitter for the Astros with a little bit of power. You know, obviously not as much as uh, he had more than you think because he played so much in the Dome. Mm-hmm. But when we traded him to the Reds, all of a sudden he had guys like uh, Rose in front of him and guys like Bench and Perez behind him. And so you had the pitch to him. He had a really good eye. And uh, he could punish you way more than Matt Williams if you walked him because he'd steal second, too. Uh, of course, he was MVP in the league twice because of that. And a, a, I think a really important part of those years for Joe were the hitters that hit in front of him and behind him. When you were putting together your book, My Team, what pitchers stood out when you were really starting to look at the numbers, when you saw certain pitchers pitch, which, which two pitchers stood out more than any others? Uh, Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling were the toughest. When we won that, that uh, last game in St. Louis in 2001, we were we had the same record as the Cardinals, but we had won the season series with them. So uh, we were declared the, the winner of the Central, and then we came to, uh, back to Houston and had the home field against the Braves. Uh, we lost mm-hmm. that series, but the, the I, I was really on a fence because I, Shane Reynolds was ready to pitch. 
He was our best pitcher. Yeah. On the last game of the season, if we beat the Cardinals, then we go play the Braves at home. If we lose to the Cardinals, then we're the wild card, and we go to Phoenix and, and face Johnson and Schilling. I can't remember uh, what's, what's it like to uh, face Colfax or something. And somebody said, well, you're asking me if I would like to be electrocuted or hanged. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, here's another interesting thing uh, about analytics. When we were playing the Braves, I told a couple of the hitters, I don't know if it was Joe Bagwell or who it was, I said, you know, if you would wait for a strike, a good pitch to hit, you'd get it. <laughs> They'd look at me like I was crazy because the pitches they remember him throwing were these backdoor sinkers and that would be outside and they'd come in and catch the plate for a called strike and he'd throw one on the outside part of the plate and cut it and they'd swing at it and it would go off the plate. It wouldn't be a strike. So Maddox was so good at getting you to swing at balls and take strikes. Uh, but he was also really willing to walk anybody. You know, he was, uh, he might have walked Bonds, but he he averaged about 20, 25 walks a year. Well, he pitched 250 innings and walked 25 guys. Yes. If so he gave in. Glavin, Glavin would pitch the same number of innings, and he would walk 100 guys. Yeah. He would rather walk you than give you a good pitch to hit. And so I'm talking to our guys, and I'm saying, you know, you've got to wait him out, wait for a good pitch. If he throws those nasty things, just go back to the dugout. But chances are you're going to get maybe one or two good pitches to hit off him tonight. Be ready. So we weren't quite ready uh, in that series, but we were. We did hit him at other times. But it's yeah. just it's, what's fascinating is both of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. People mention their name uh together in the same sentence like they mentioned Bagwell Biggio and everything they did they deserved but they weren't the same they were both control pitchers but they weren't the same pitcher at all and Bagwell and Biggio weren't the same players at all. Well, always great to reflect on, on postseason memories and I know in, in 86 when you were a broadcaster because Sparky has become legendary for some of his celebratory interviews down in the clubhouse the last few years. And he's had plenty of practice with the Astros making the playoffs for the last five seasons in the world series two, the last three. But what about uh, when Scotty threw that no hitter and you were conducting interviews, we just recently played that uh, game on Astros radio. Uh, What do you remember about that celebration? Well, uh, I was so happy. I was thrilled myself. And uh, I I just, to tell you the truth, I, I, it was like mayhem. You had Charlie Kerfield, who was nuts, Larry Anderson, who was nuts, and Dave Smith, who was not. He he was in a little bit more subdued way, but they're all wearing conehead masks. Uh, yeah. Everybody's smoking cigars and everybody's pouring champagne all over. You get it poured on your head and it gets in your eyes, and then you can't see. And so it just it was it was mayhem, and I was delirious with with the. Um, happiness over uh, for Mike Scott. I, I really got to be pretty good friends with Mike. And so I was really happy for him that he did it. I, I uh, to, to clinch the division and we did it way far. And we're still maybe 10 games left in the season. It was a great team. But uh, mm-hmm. the other thing that you get into down there and Sparky's probably done this is if, if you win the game, uh, 
by winning, uh, you win the game and clinch. It's different than if you lose a game and then you want your opponent lose. And so right. then how long are you going to sit in the clubhouse to see if you've clinched? And you lose that spontaneity. But uh, in that 86 game, we knew if we won, we clinched, and we won and clinched with a no-hitter. And the other thing that uh, people don't see when they're uh, looking at a post-game uh, celebration is that there's a million wires on the ground. You know, when you're doing broadcasting, uh, TV, you know, I've got, a, I've got a mic that's attached to a wire. I'm trying to walk around and get interviews with guys, uh, but I'm having to pull this cable. And people are stepping on it, kicking it. <laughs> you know, you're trying to get somewhere. It's like you're at the end of your leash, and then it eases up, and you go somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> the whole scene, you know, it's wonderful. It just, I'm, I'm thank you guys for calling me up and, and letting me in, enjoy this time because I probably wouldn't have been thinking about these things otherwise. Well, I, I got a question for you, and this is a tough question. I just want to see if you'll answer it because it's not easy. But who are your favorite teammates? As Astros, and who are your favorite? Who is your favorite ever to manage? Uh, as a player, I guess a lot of people would probably say Doug Rader. I guess I would say Doug Rader. He was also he was crazy, and sometimes he was he could hurt people, but he was <laughs> funny too. He was very bright, and, and uh, he was always coming up with something that would make people laugh. Uh, I had a couple other guys that I really have remained friends with for a long time, but sure. they're sort of obscure and. Probably not. You know, people wouldn't remember him like they did Doug. But uh, as far as managing, uh, there were two guys uh, that I would I would make a toss up, uh, and that was Bill Spires. I was going to say Billy Spires. Billy Spires and Luis Gonzalez, and mm. both of them, uh, the intangibles had a lot to do with the way I felt about them. I just felt like they made the team better with their presence during my time that got along with everyone in the, in the locker room, uh, the way he did. And he was also a pretty good practical joker. And then Bill right. Spires was just, you know, he was having to get an epidural in his back at spring training. He was having to get injection in his back. He had, uh, he had a back problem that he's going to have the rest of his life. But he kept going out there. He played third. He played short. He played second. He played outfield positions, and he was playing in the outfield uh, almost every day in September of 1999, when it went right down to the wire, and we had to win the last game and did win it. So Billy was, you know, he was another guy that was universally loved by all of his teammates, and both of those guys also made big contributions on the field. In 1987, I, I signed professionally, and I played in the, the Pioneer League for the, the Helena Brewers. And there was a team in that league that you know who I'm talking about. Do and, I ever? Uh, it's, yeah, the Salt Lake City Trappers. You're writing a book about that 1987 team, the Salt Lake City team, who did some special things. Where are you in that process right now? And tell the folks a little bit about that team. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm in a bit of a writer's block right now, but I've got enough invested and enough down already in the document that I think I'm eventually going to finish it. I, I'm, I made a really good friend with uh, college coach Jim Gilligan, who, who yeah. just had a fabulous career at Lamar University in Beaumont. And he was the manager of that team. And we'd play golf and, he's, and we'd 
go go to the 19th hole and have a beer or something afterwards. Say, I got to tell you about uh, I got to tell you about this thing happened in 1997. And so after I'd heard a lot of these stories about that team, I said, you know, I think somebody needs to write a book about that, and I'd like to do it, but I'm not in a position where I can even start right now. So. Mm. As time went on, and I and I retired and started taking my pension and had more time uh, to do things, and I said, "Okay, we're going to do this." And so I started, and I found an editor. You know, everybody needs an editor, no matter how okay. good you are. So I, I found the right editor, and the team won uh, 29 straight games, which is an all-time record for Crazy. professional baseball. But it was much more than that. There were just crazy stuff like uh bill murray was one of the minority owners and he came yeah. in two or three times and he really shook things up he was going to uh, uh duffy's tavern after the game with the guys and he'd end up behind the bar serving drinks and one time came in with huey lewis and there was a big concert story in the party afterwards uh, there were a couple <laughs> of guys on the team players who were uh pretty colorful as well and and gilligan himself in in the the line of the great Irish storytellers, he can, he can spin a yarn. So I've got yeah. lots of material. I just got to get it organized and, and and make it come together like you do with a broadcast or any other creative thing you're doing. You try to think about who's going to be watching, listening, or reading and, and try to present it to them in a way that they'll really enjoy it. Yeah, it might be a movie. Well, of all the roles you filled, Dirk, I know uh, we didn't even talk about you being director of group and season tickets after your playing career, uh, and most mm-hmm. recently an ambassador with the Astros. We love whenever we see you out of the ballpark, and we really enjoyed the time we had on this podcast. I, th- I know a lot of people are going to enjoy catching up with this one. So thanks so much uh, for giving us the time and reflecting back on, on an amazing career. Well, thanks for you guys for what you're doing here because uh, – you know, a lot of people have to have their baseball. I mean, they just have to have it. Great time catching up with Larry Durker. Sparky, I, of all the podcasts we've done, we've had some great guests. Dirk feels like a guy you could have easily done a two-hour podcast and not gotten tired of hearing the stories. I can't imagine having him as a broadcast partner with as many roles as he's filled as a longtime player, a really good player, I might add, in the uh, five years as a manager, just to being able, you, you you think of Bob Brindley, and there's not a whole lot of them who've who've managed, played, uh, been successful at, at both of those, and, and turned into great broadcasters because of all the insight, you know, and they they can pres- you know present so many sides to strategy where there's not one clear cut answer. They can give you all these different scenarios, and I love the fact that he was keeping files and quotes uh, in stories uh, along his career so he could add that flavor to, to a broadcast too. So that's what I was most looking forward to, to talking with him about. Of course, his writing, uh, uh, he's been doing so much writing as far as blogs and books uh, for years and years now. All while, Todd, uh, not even going to college. I mean, how did he get so bright uh, with just a high school diploma? Uh, it kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, I got the uh, education growing up through the major leagues after getting, uh, yeah, you know, debuting with the Astros on his 18th birthday out of a high school in Woodland Hills, California, signed by the Colt 45s. Actually, debuted with the Colt Amazing. 45s. But yeah, he's a he's a guy that always, whenever I talk to him, feels like he has an insatiable appetite for life. That he's always looking for the next thing, and I hope he finishes that book. 
uh, on the Salt Lake City Trappers. That could be awesome because uh, yeah, he could probably spin, he could probably spin it in a way with his historic background and knowledge of the game. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a treat to, to get to talk to Dirk, and we always love talking to him uh, whenever he comes out to the ballpark. I'm always impressed uh, about people who are always trying to still uh, continue to learn. You know, and that's what that's what Larry Durker is, is reminding me of. Is you know, he's in his 70s now, and he's still out there trying to learn. And uh, I, I know sometimes we've had conversations at the ballpark about sabermetrics. You know, and he loved it. You know, he, he loves uh, the enlightenment of just learning things. Yep, 49fastball.com. He doesn't blog as much as he used to, but there's a lot of stories that are still on there. So 49, the letter S, and then the word fastball.com. 49fastball.com. Getting ready for the start of the baseball season that we keep saying, hopefully it's around the corner. Hopefully this time it truly is. Uh, Sparky, as always, great to catch up. We'll uh, do it again soon. See you later! Houston. We know these are uncertain and unprecedented times, but we will get through this. We will get through this together. Together. It is important that we all take the necessary steps to ensure safety of our loved ones and our community. You're the best fans in baseball. The best. And we love you. We love you. Baseball will be back. And we cannot wait to see you. Stay safe, Houston. For the H. It's for the H.